Our topic is the use of Scripture in recent study Bibles, and our timing is somewhat ironic. Next year marks the 400th anniversary of the King James Version. And as you probably know, one of the motivations behind the King James Version was the desire to displace a popular study Bible, the Geneva Bible. This Bible had many of the features we would associate with a study Bible today, including notes that King James found seditious. James knew the power hidden in the margins of God's holy word, the power to form community. In this case, a community that was religiously radical and politically restless. And so he called for the version that bears his name to be published without notes. Now, 400 years later, we too know the power hidden in the margins, but rather than fear such power, we embrace it. In no other time in history has there been such a wide variety of study Bibles. Our consumerist culture and our strong individualistic and pragmatic tendencies have created a marketing phenomenon, the study Bible. The irony, however, is that the more these Bibles are published, the more fragmented God's people become. Instead of conveying readings of Scripture down through generations and across cultural divides, each new study Bible creates a new demographic fragmentation of the people of God. Show me your study Bible, and you show me yourself. Why? Well, because your study Bible identifies you not so much by faith in Christ as by something else. It could be your age. Do you have the grandmother's study Bible, the college study Bible, or the teen study Bible? It could be your sex. Do you have the women of faith study Bible or the guys' life application study Bible? It could be your race. Do you have the men of color study Bible or the new women of color study Bible? It could be your scholarly interests. Do you have the apologetic study Bible or the archaeological study Bible? It could be your social interests. Do you have the green Bible, Chuck, or the poverty and justice Bible? <laughs> could be your favorite author, besides God, of course. And here I'm talking about the Lucado Life's Lesson Study Bible or the Case for Christ Study Bible. In such a world, what is a Lutheran to do? <laughs> well, one answer would be to produce a Lutheran Study Bible. <laughs> this is something that both the ELCA and the LCMS did last year. And another answer would be to ask, what does this mean? And that is what we will do today. This afternoon, we will examine three study Bibles. The ESV study Bible published by Crossway, the Lutheran study Bible published by CPH, and the Lutheran study Bible published by Augsburg Fortress. Our purpose is to evaluate these Bibles, not on the basis of how well they are selling, but on the basis of what they are doing. In the American marketplace, study Bibles sell well when they cry out to individual lifestyles and personal agendas. Within their pages, however, is a different cry. The voice of the triune God inviting us into his church where his life for us and his mission for the world shape our lifestyles and change our personal agendas. This afternoon, we will consider how the study material that surrounds the text of scripture forms a community of readers that takes its place not within some demographic segment of the American marketplace, but within the history of God's people being gathered by the Spirit through these words and formed in the body of Christ. How does the shape of the study Bible shape our experience of faith? 
I will begin by commenting on the overall layout of the study Bible, the larger essays, introductions to the books, and then Mark Hainer and Matt Hainer will continue by looking at texts in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The study of Scripture can be a full-bodied experience. Consider the Apostle Paul writing in Romans 9 through 11. Here Paul approaches a mystery, the mystery of election, a mystery that today even causes readers to look down at the notes. And as Paul approaches this mystery, consider how he forms experiences in the hearts and minds of his hearers. He appeals to his character. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He appeals to reason offering examples and analogies and scriptural citation along with explanation. And yet theology is not a dispassionate, rational enterprise for Paul, but awakens his innermost spirit, leading him to appeal to emotion. He begins in the depths of sorrow and anguish. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And he ends in the heights of doxological praise. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. To him be glory forever. Amen. Through character, reason, and emotion, Paul creates a full-bodied experience of the fullness of the faith. And that kind of reading is not limited to early Christians in Rome. It continues among Christians today. As we consider the study Bibles, I would like to think about them in terms of these three rhetorical appeals. My work is not definitive, but merely suggestive. Analyzing how the Bibles use these appeals to approach and appropriate the text to scripture for personal study. My argument is that different uses of these appeals form different ways of interacting with God's word and being formed in the faith. And you do have a handout in your uh, folder. Great. Okay. <laughs> and you also have a series of handouts that will be used later. The ethical appeal. The ethical appeal draws attention to the character of the speaker. Now, in scriptural study, this means that it seeks to honor relationships within the body of Christ and allow those relationships to form us in the faith. We come together not as a democracy where the voice of the majority rules, nor as an empire where you have voices of power and voices from the margin. No, God calls us together as his people, the church, to whom he has given pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Through ethical appeals, study Bibles help Christians experience what it means to read Scripture as the church to whom God has given pastors and teachers for equipping the saints. Of the three study Bibles, Augsburg Fortress and Crossway emphasize the ethical appeal most fully. To do this, they have been clear and comprehensive in their attribution. They identify every author of every essay that appears, and even though introductions and notes always involve editing, they identify the major writer for every book. So, when you open the Crossway Study Bible and you turn to the book of Nahum, you know that you are interacting with the scholarship of Dr. Walter A. Meyer III from Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne. When you turn to the book of Obadiah, you know that you are interacting with the scholarship of Dr. Paul Robbie from Concordia Seminary, St. Louis. Augsburg Fortress, which also identifies all of its authors, provides the following reason. We are a gifted church with many talented and influential teaching theologians. The study Bible provides a means to display these gifts and insights for the sake of all who seek to study, read, and reflect on God's word. God's gift of pastors and teachers forms the basis for identifying the authors of the notes. Knowing who writes what is actually valuable in study. 
It helps you locate the words in time and place and begin to recognize particular patterns of thought and frameworks of belief. Not every theologian is called to confront the same challenges and heresies, and not every theologian has the same gifts or the same tools at his disposal, and thus different theologians have different emphases depending upon the time and the place and the people to whom they speak. Knowing this helps you interpret their words as they help you, help you interpret God's word. How do these study Bibles use this ethical appeal? Well, here's where they differ. The Crossway Study Bible forthrightly identifies its authors to demonstrate a consensus, quote, of classical evangelical orthodoxy in the historic stream of the Reformation, end quote. Augsburg Fortress, however, uses the ethical appeal not to voice consensus, but to voice diversity. And they use the authority of the speakers as pastors and theologians of the church to sanction that diversity, even when it destabilizes or obscures Christian orthodoxy. For example, in their study Bible, you have the article, The Small Catechism, A Simple Guide for the Book of Faith, written by Timothy Wenger. Now, knowing the author is helpful. It enables you to know his work in Reformation history, his book, Martin Luther's Catechisms, Forming the Faith. And in this article, he uses Luther's Catechism to attack individualistic and pragmatic reading practices. He notes that those who seek a, quote, blessing on one's own self-chosen spirituality will encounter God who, quote, turns our Bible reading on its head. Now, within the same Bible, you can turn to the book of Numbers and read the work of Will de Gaffney, an African-American professor of Old Testament and homiletics and pastor in the AME Zion Church who seeks to bring a global feminist perspective to her work. Reading through her notes, you recognize how she pays attention to feminine metaphors for God and to marginalized voices. In Numbers 11, when Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp, Gaffney notes, and I quote, an ugly part of communal life, especially religious life, attempts to silence the voices of those who do not look or behave like someone who is speaking on behalf of God. Those doing the silencing judge others on the basis of age, gender, sexual orientation, disabling condition, race, culture, or community, end quote. Here, radically disparate theological positions are gathered together in one study Bible. Knowing who wrote what encourages recognition of and conversation with the theologians of the church, no matter how much their voices differ from one another, or from you, or from what the church has always believed. And this is the main impact of the ethical appeal in the Augsburg Fortress Study Bible. It uses ethical appeal to create dialogue with readers and theologians, even though that dialogue destabilizes the teachings of the Orthodox Christianity. What about the CPH Study Bible? Through ethical appeal, the editors have done well in inspiring a greater conversation with the fathers of the church. For every scriptural book, the introduction provides responses from Luther, and the study notes frequently reference the Lutheran confessions, and the study Bible has carried this further, including in the notes references to church fathers, such as Ambrose and Athanasius, Chrysostom and Clement of Rome. These notes broaden our perspective so that we receive the wisdom of the church, not just from teachers of the Reformation, but also from the church Catholic. And this is good. Unfortunately, as the study Bible turns toward pastors and theologians living today, attribution is inconsistent. Professors, pastors, commission ministers, and laymen were involved in writing the study notes for the books of Scripture. Now, due to standard editorial practice on a multi-author work, their names appear in the beginning in a list without anything else. You don't know the positions within the church to which God has called them. You don't know the book or the study material to which they contributed. And this lack of attribution 
creates a strange erasure of God's living teachers and an even stranger experience in reading. For example, we have a wonderful series of essays on miracles. Now, they're scattered throughout the study Bible, but if you were to take them all together, you would have a wonderful, comprehensive theology of the miraculous. But we don't know who wrote them. In fact, I don't even know if the same person wrote all of them. Now, one of them begins in a very personal way. It starts by telling us a story. I met Lydia in college through a friend, it says. And yet the personal story is anonymous. Another uses language that tends towards scholarly analysis. The writer refers to an article that categorizes miracles. Here we're given the name of the scholar in the book, but unfortunately the scholar's misidentified. The theory of Mike Graves is wrongly attributed to Eugene Lowry. So as we learn about miracles, we have a wide variety of registers, from the conversational I met Lydia in college to the scholarly analysis, and yet the lack of careful attribution creates the irony that the person who speaks most personally is anonymous, and the person who speaks most academically in this case is wrong. <laughs> and I'm an academic. The issue, the issue here is not a matter of the content that is offered. The content is good. It's a matter of the way the content is offered and how that method shapes reading practices and conversation in the church. Statements from the confessions, from early church fathers, from Lutheran theologians, and from anonymous present-day pastors and laymen are woven together seamlessly as if they are to be used in the same way as one meditates upon Scripture. And such interweaving at times creates conflicts of interpretation within the notes themselves. So as readers look down to the notes for help with a verse, they might find themselves needing helps with the notes, taking time to think about who said what in what situation in order to discover that story of how Scripture shaped the confession of the church. Now, one has a surface coherence in which all of these statements are permitted because they have all passed doctrinal review and they've been published in the study Bible. And yet the deeper coherence the way in which God works through the voices of pastors and teachers confessing the faith in each generation is less apparent. And because of the lack of attribution, you cannot always speak of the work of a particular pastor or theologian, but are left turning to another authority, the authority of the publisher, in the process of doctrinal review, saying something like, my study Bible says. As the ethical appeal draws attention to the speaker, the logical appeal draws attention to reason reason used in service to the faith. Now here of the three study Bibles, the Crossway Study Bible is the clearest and the strongest in using this appeal. Their notes and essays display two predominant ways in which reason serves faith. When reading the notes within the books of the Bible, reason is used primarily in service to understanding the texts within their historical contexts. So for example, with narrative texts, the notes will often follow a narrative logic, unfolding the story, and highlighting details that help you understand the story better. God's people, however, have also used reason to form a confession of faith for the church and the world, and the Crossway Study Bible highlights that use of reason by collecting all scholarly essays at the end to be considered as a whole. There you'll find short, comprehensive pieces on everything, from Christian doctrine and ethics to Christianity and world religions. Now, reason is used in a similar way in the CPH study Bible as well, but here the organization creates a different reading experience. In the CPH study Bible, the essays are scattered throughout the Bible, and the notes are widely divergent in how one uses reason in relation to a text. So, for example, with narrative texts, and you'll see this in the ones you have, some notes follow the trajectory of the narrative, leading the reader into a deeper understanding of the story of the texts. 
Other notes tend to fragment the text, using individual words to lead the reader into apologetics or scientific explanation or disparate theological disputations, while the larger essays call the reader into a topical Bible study. Now, for the serious student, this great variety is a great resource. Gathered before you are many ways in which this passage has been used in different contexts to confess the faith, and that's great. You can spend hours studying who said what, when, in relationship to this passage and trace how this passage has been used in the church. For the uninitiated, however, this can be confusing or even contradictory, as one needs to know more about the historical setting in order to interpret the various readings. So, for example, James 2.24, it's a passage that sometimes troubled Lutherans raised on the Reformation language of faith alone. It reads, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, the study aids on that verse demand a lot of the reader. The, um, some of the notes situate the verse within the book of James, and they carefully explain how justified means shown to be righteous. The larger essay, however, offers you a quote from the Apology that says, here, to be justified does not mean that a righteous person is made from a wicked person. It means to be pronounced righteous in a judicial sense. Now, both agree that James is not saying we're saved by our works, but they seem to differ on what justified means in this passage. Does it mean shown to be righteous or declared righteous in a judicial sense, or both? Which is the reader to choose? Various kinds of theological reflection from various time periods and to various ends are all gathered together for the reader, and this can be helpful in terms of resources for a serious student, but it may be confusing for others, creating a fragmentary and occasional reflection on various topics rather than guiding you into a coherent reading of the text. Now, I notice that CPH just produced a separate study guide for the study Bible, and this... <laughs> This is actually good. I, mean, I think this is good because this gives them the opportunity to address some of these questions. I could very easily see them taking you through how to read the fathers of the church in relationship to these texts. The emotional appeal. The emotional appeal forms readers through experience, moving from the head to the heart and inspiring the imagination. The place where the CPH Study Bible employs the emotional appeal most powerfully is leading readers into devotional contemplation. So while each study Bible contains articles on how to read the Bible devotionally, it's only the CPH study Bible that gives you the material that puts that reading into practice. And the mode that is used most frequently for this type of re reading is not an appeal to reason, but an appeal to emotions, to the imagination, to the life experience of the readers generating a personal experience and application of God's word. Consider the short essays scattered throughout the Bible. They generally fall into two categories of spiritual formation. Some of the essays form the readers apologetically, teaching them how to answer challenges to the faith, such as homosexuality, soul sleep, pluralism, universalism. Other essays form them devotionally, seeking to help them apply the passages to life. Each of these essays offers a self-contained moment of devotional reflection, centered in Christ and spiritually formative. The practice of Lexio Divina, where a word or a phrase leads from scripture into meditation and prayer, seems to inform the placement of these studies. They appear occasionally throughout the reading. The appeal to emotion occurs most distinctively in the introductions to the biblical books. Here, you can see the clearest contrast between the Crossway Study Bible and the emotional appeal of the uh, CPH text. The Crossway Study Bible offers what one would expect in a scholarly, academic introduction to a text. 
an analysis of the author, the date, the purpose, the place of writing, how this fits into the overall history of salvation, and the characteristic literary features and theological themes that run through the book. This introduction to the text of scripture treats them as literary texts inspired by God and situated within a particular time and place as, as part of God's coherent salvific work throughout history. While the CPH Study Bible denies none of these things about these texts of scripture, this kind of scholarly introduction is marginalized. Literally, it is abbreviated and put in the margins. Some topics are expanded under challenges for readers and sometimes they're not. What is always present, however, is a story that will lead you through experience and appeal to the imagination into the world of the text. Bright orange, purple, and red fruit droop from branches like heavy drops of morning dew. The trees bow with the weight, welcoming the glorious face of the sun. Light glimmers through the branches, stirring in the breeze, which rouses two figures, Adam and Eve. This is your introduction to the book of Genesis. This feature is truly distinctive among study Bibles. Glancing at about 25 study Bibles, I found only one, the Life Application Study Bible, that did something similar. These introductions have chosen to work with the power of story, an appeal to experience and emotion and the imagination. And such an appeal mirrors the current cultural shift from modernism to postmodernism, from an elevation of reason and objectivity and the scientific method to an affirmation of experience and the value of stories that give shape to experience and offer creative perspectives. Now, some of these introductions are powerful in a creative way. So, for example, the introduction to the uh, book of Proverbs asks you to enter the marketplace of Jerusalem, and there you encounter a sultry woman who caresses the doorframe of her house. She winks and she smiles. The appeal to the senses and to sensuality in this case is a creative way of reconfiguring Proverbs chapter 7. So the reader is actually taken into the imaginative world of the biblical text, which uses this contrast between the call of an adulteress and the call of wisdom to contrast the way of the foolishness and the way of God. Sometimes, however, the sensual introductions are a bit distracting. In Isaiah, the scriptural text and the study Bible artwork evoke in your imagination Isaiah's call and experience of holy terror in the temple of the Lord of hosts, the story, however, helps you see the faithfulness of Israel by introducing you to a woman putting on makeup. With one hand, she slips the ivory comb through her wavy black hair. With the other, she checks her progress in a polished bronze mirror. In the letters of John, to consider how the church is a family, you're invited to listen in on a group of women folding laundry, where an aunt sighs, rubbing her rounded belly, babies kicking again. I think there's another runner on the way. In conclusion... Considering the three study Bibles in terms of these three appeals, we begin to discern differences in how Scripture shapes faith experience. The Augsburg Fortress Study Bible highlights the pastors and teachers of the church and does so in a way that creates diversity and celebrates a multiplicity of different and differing voices. To study Scripture here is to dialogue with all voices and to live by holding in tension various expressions of belief, including those that fall outside Lutheran orthodoxy. The Crossway Study Bible highlights the teachers of various church bodies in a way that presents a generally coherent and reasonable evangelical orthodoxy. The study of scripture here is a scholarly work where rational inquiry and objective analysis leads to a consensus of interpretation. The CPH Study Bible highlights an experiential and imaginative interaction with the text of scripture grounded in Lutheran theology and yet seeking to foster devotional reading. The study of scripture here is a devotional experience that leads the readers into prayer 
and forms them for both a confession and a defense of their faith. Having looked at the uh, larger study Bible, we'll now look at uh, Old Testament passages. I'd like to direct your attention to the uh, three handouts you have. Uh, the cream-colored uh, handouts stapled is the cross, uh, excerpts from the Crossways ESV Bible. And I'll be uh, pointing to that first in sequence of the passages we look at. The second will be the salmon-colored, the ELCA study Bible. And the third will be the yellow, and that's the LCMS, the CPH uh, study Bible. So if you like to look along with what I'm looking at, that's what I'm looking at. Uh, one note, uh, Matt will uh, change the order a little. He can explain that when he's up here doing New Testament. So I began my study of the notes by considering my role as a parish pastor more than an Old Testament doctoral student. Since the intended audience and the readers of these Bibles are lay people and parish pastors. First, I looked at the appointed readings for the coming week of the symposium, texts I would most likely preach on. So the first text I'd like to analyze with you is the appointed psalm, Psalm 146. I also picked what I thought might be controversial texts. I photocopied them from each study Bible and gave them to three sets of lay people who regularly attend my adult Bible classes. I wanted to see how they interacted with what might be controversial texts by reading the text and also the study notes. I did not tell the people anything about the Bibles or even indicate from which Bible the readings they were about to read were from. And so I'll share my observations regarding Genesis 19, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, one of these controversial texts which caused an interesting dialogue between myself and one of my lay members. So first, beginning with the appointed psalm for the week, Psalm 146, and the Crossway Study Bible. See John Collins from Covenant Theological Seminary helps the reader to understand the psalm as a whole by highlighting main themes of the psalm. He classifies this psalm as a hymn of praise, notes how the phrase, praise the Lord, is the Hebrew word for hallelujah, and how this phrase begins and ends the psalm. He helps the reader see how the psalm contrasts the trusting in princes of the world versus the trusting in God, and not just any God, but specifically the God of Jacob who made the heavens and the earth. He also highlights the contrast between those who are oppressed and those who are wicked, and how God responds to each. Collins also helps the reader to understand this psalm in the greater context of the biblical narrative. This psalm's call to trust God as the, quote, maker of the heavens and earth should be read in light of Genesis 1 and 2, he suggests. And when the reader turns there, he or she engages the point of view of T. Desmond Alexander of Union Theological College in Belfast who leads the reader to interpret Genesis 1 and 2 as historical accounts of God's creative acts inspired by God and written by Moses. Collins and Alexander together create a coherent point of view for the reader guiding him or her to trust in God because he created everything just as Genesis 1 and 2 says. Moving now to the ELCA study Bible of Psalm 146. Rolf A. Jacobson also guides the reader to consider the main themes of the psalm. 
Like the Crossways Bible, Jacobson also contrasts the trusting in human princes versus trusting in God. He tells the reader that this psalm reveals that God's faithfulness is made known through creation and through God's justice. Thus, as the Crossway Bible does, so also the ELCA Bible makes a connection of trusting in God with God's creative acts. But in this Bible, there's no explanation as to what that means. There is no encouraging the reader to consider Genesis 1 and 2. If the reader were to do so in this Bible, there would be some confusion over what it means to trust in God as a creator. Terence E. Fretheim, the author of the study notes on Genesis, says, we don't know exactly how God or what God created. He tells the reader that we don't have to believe that God created out of nothing. He says that when God saw it was good, that the word good does not imply that creation was perfect, but just beautiful. And he says that because God told man to subdue, that clearly the creation was not perfect and continued to need work. Fretheim asks the reader what he or she thinks is meant by a day. And finally, in the What Do Lutherans Believe note, he tells the readers that there is great diversity among Lutherans around the world concerning what is to be believed in God's role of creation, and that the Lutheran confessions do not mandate us to believe that God created in six 24-hour days. Finally, he asks the reader, what do you think about how scientific evidence fits with Genesis 1 and 2? While both the Crossways and ELC study Bibles lead the reader to understand the psalm in light of God's creative acts, both do so towards a different end. Instead of leading the reader to consider one coherent message of the biblical narrative, and instead of trying to build a consensus of point of views regarding the historic and orthodox teaching of creation, as the Crossways Bible does, the ELCA Bible offers the reader two seemingly and competing, or at least confusing, voices and point of views regarding God's role in creation. Jacobson tells the reader to trust in God because of his creative acts, but Fretheim leads the reader to question what it means that God is the creator. If one does not know what or how God really created, how can one know if God is really faithful, as Jacobson suggests? Now we'll look at the new CPH study Bible. We do not know who should be credited with these study notes of Psalm 46 because they are anonymous. Like the other two Bibles, this Bible offers the reader the resources to understand the psalm as a whole. This Bible also deals with the theme of trust. However, a law gospel icon points the reader to trust in God as Savior more so than God as Creator. It guides the reader to understand the line, do not put your trust in the Son of Man, as a call to specifically trust in God as Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, in whom there is salvation. It directs the reader also to his or her baptism and ends with a nice prayer. Thus, the CPH Bible directs the reader to apply this psalm devotionally and personally. It teaches the reader how to pray the psalm. And this devotional touch is also sacramental in nature, as it reminds the reader that they can be sure the promises of Psalm 146 are for them because of their baptisms into the Son of Man. The notes point the reader also to its greater context in Scripture. 
they, form the, they inform the reader of the heading that appears in the Septuagint for the psalm, which places this psalm with the post-exilic prophets Haggai and Zechariah. This is helpful for applying the theology of the psalm in a sermon or Bible study because it allows a pastor or reader to view this psalm within the time period of when it was written or perhaps used in worship. The notes also try to place this psalm in a particularly a particular literary context, labeling it as an acrostic poem and offering a reference to an essay on Hebrew poetry which describes acrostic poems briefly. This note, however, is confusing. Psalm 146 is not an alphabetic acrostic poem like Psalm 145 before it is. There is some debate whether there are non-alphabetic acrostic poems in the Bible. Some say there are, some say there are not. I was told by one of our leading scholars in the Psalms that this is not one of them if there are. <laughs> this note could be very confusing then to a layperson or especially a parish pastor who gets his Hebrew Bible out to show his layperson what a acrostic poem looks like. If he really knows what it looks like, this psalm would be hard to explain. <laughs> Although he could just look at Psalm 145 and he could do that. Finally, while the law gospel note does point the reader to see Christ in this psalm in a clear, textual, and devotionally valuable way, through words such as trust and son of man, there is another rather confusing note in these notes which comes before that nice devotional note. It's under the note, Son of Man, if you look. This note simply has a reader reference page 2098, an essay on the names of Jesus. This essay informs the reader that the title, Son of Man, when referring to Jesus, is a messianic title. In the psalm, however, the phrase Son of Man refers to humanity, not Jesus as a Son of Man. And moreover, it's a negative usage of the Son of Man. We should not put our trust in the Son of Man. So why a note referring us to Jesus as the Son of Man? If this note is going to point to Christ, it should clearly distinguish Christ as the Son of Man for the reader from sinful human beings as sons of man, as the law gospel note implies. Now moving to Genesis 19 the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Back to the cream color pages, the Crossway Bible. Dr. T. Desmond Alexander offers good isagogical notes that help to educate the reader to the life and times of the text as well as the meaning of some original Hebrew words. I really like the small color map locating Sodom and Gomorrah which also highlights the territory of the Ammonites and the Moabites, the descendants of Lot, a move that intentionally leads the reader to interpret this passage in the greater biblical narrative, in the context of the greater biblical narrative. Alexander clearly points the reader to the sin of homosexuality by pointing to the language of the text. Quote, the men of the city, both young and old, were the ones who wanted to, quote, know the angelic messengers. Alexander explains that the Hebrew word to know often means to have intercourse with and shows other places this word is used for this meaning. Alexander leads the reader to understand this narrative in light of other troubling narratives concerning God's judgment on sin. 
So interpreting this sometimes uh, controversial passage, you turn to the greater biblical narrative again. So Sodom and Gomorrah is compared to the account of the flood and the destruction of the Canaanites during the conquest of the Promised Land. Alexander does not try to lead the reader to apply this narrative to his life, to his or her own life, but rather remains objective and detached. As we look at the ELCA and CPH study Bibles, they too guide the reader to understand the main message of this narrative to be about sin and God's judgment, but again to much different ends. In the ELCA Bible, Terence Fretheim, with a Bible concept icon, points the reader to see the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah to be the sexual abuse of strangers and or gang rape, as would take place in prisons. He then points the reader to Ezekiel 19 for a list of, of Sodom's sins, such as pride, gluttony, and not taking care of the poor. Frethheim guides the reader to interpret the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah with the greater scriptural context. But he does so in order to steer the reader away from the traditional understanding that this text speaks about homosexuality and its behavior as sin. He does not have the reader consider texts like Leviticus 18.22, in which Rodney Hutton interestingly does explicitly say that God's word prohibits sexual activity between men. Again, Fretheim's obvious steering away from the issue of homosexuality in comparison to Hutton's point of view in Leviticus shows another example of the ELCA Bible offering competing, or at least seemingly competing, point of views, which could be quite confusing for a Christian struggling with his or her sexual identity or wanting to know how to counsel a friend who is. Fretheim only offers two more notes or observations. First, a world of the Bible notes, which explains away the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as an earthquake that ignited bitumen deposits. Fretheim then guides the reader in applying this narrative to his or her life. However, instead of guiding the reader to consider the devastating results of sin, or God's judgment, or his mercy towards Lot, Fretheim asks the reader to consider modern-day environmental disasters caused by humanity. So according to Fretheim, the oil spill in the Gulf has more to do with the account of Sodom and Gomorrah than we may have thought. <laughs> Finally, the CPH Bible on Genesis 19. Again, we do not know to whom these notes should be attributed. They are anonymous. In many respects, it is like the Crossways Bible, for example, by pointing to the sin of homosexuality and offering a note on the Hebrew word to know as meaning to have intercourse with. The CPH Bible deals with the issue of sin, however, again, differently from the other two Bibles. Instead of remaining objective and detached as the Crossways Bible, and instead of explaining the sin away as the ELCA Bible, the CPH Bible leads the reader into prayer to God for mercy and thanksgiving for deliverance from his judgment. So when, plot, when, when Lot pleads not to go to the hills, but instead to the city of Zoar, there's a nice quote attributed to Luther regarding the angel's response, Behold, I grant you this favor. Luther's point of view is inserted to point the reader to see Lot's request in the same way we might approach God's throne of mercy with requests for this life. 
This Bible then points the reader to consider other passages considering God's word on homosexuality in order to build consensus and a coherent perspective of the issue within God's word. There's a reference to Leviticus 18 and Romans 1, as well as a page 1911, which offers a half-page essay on why homosexuality is a sin. Here the principle of Scripture interprets Scripture is clearly at work. And these notes give the reader one consistent point of view and an in-depth discussion on the topic of homosexuality to equip them for dialogue in the world. Then comes a quite confusing study note. I actually had not looked at this particular text and its study notes until one of my lay members who had volunteered to be part of my survey called me confused about the Trinitarian icon for verse 24. In the ESV, the biblical text reads, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. The CPH study notes highlight the words, The Lord rained, dot, 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 from the Lord, as if the text is suggesting that there are two lords, or in our Lutheran Christian understanding, two persons of the triune God acting in relationship from one another. I would suggest that the Trinity icon placed at this verse with these particular study notes causes great confusion for the typical reader and parish pastor. First, the Hebrew text is certainly not clear that the Lord is reigning from the Lord. In Genesis 19.24, the Hebrew is simply Yahweh caused to rain down on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from Yahweh from heaven. In other words, the Hebrew could simply be redundant in naming Yahweh as the subject doing the destruction in order to highlight for the reader that in fact Yahweh is the one destroying and not the bitumen pits or an earthquake. If you look at the NIV translation, by the way, it suggests this reading by reading something like, The Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire, dash, from the Lord, from heaven, as if it's a redundant thing in the text. Second, the Hebrew does not suggest some other Trinitarian red flag, such as like Psalm 110, which reads, Yahweh said to Adonai, two different words used for the English word Lord, or, as in the sacrifice of Isaac, you've got the Malach, Yahweh, and Yahweh, both acting and speaking in the narrative. There are also, to my knowledge, no other scriptural passages that clearly interpret the pre-incarnate Christ at work here, such as St. Paul telling the Corinthians that the rock the Israelites drank from was really Christ, or Jesus himself quoting Psalm 110 as pointing to himself. The study notes, however, lead the reader to understand this verse as a clear revelation of the pre-incarnate Christ and triune God at work in the Old Testament. The notes first tell the reader, quote, The Son of God who spoke with Abraham rained down from his heavenly Father, the first person of the Godhead. The reader is confused, though, because they did not know that it was the Son of God who spoke to Abraham in Genesis 18, because there is no note back in chapter 18 in this Bible leading the reader to see that the three visitors, one of them at least, was the pre-incarnate Christ. Perhaps for a good reason. There is also a chart on Theophanies on page 39, 
which lists God talking to Abraham in chapter 18. But in this chart, it does not mention Jesus, the Son of God, or the second person of the Trinity as talking to Abraham. The confusion of the study notes does not end there, though. The study notes add a quote from Ambrose. Quote, The Lord rains down from the Lord. End quote. But this quote then speaks of God reigning mercy and how he is not divided when he reigns mercy. But God's not reigning mercy on Sodom and Gomorrah, I don't think. <laughs> then there's a quote from Chemnitz. The quote from Chemnitz says, that whenever the Lord is speaking about the Lord, you are safe to assume that the three persons are being talked about. But while Chemnitz wrote these words, they're not his words. He was quoting none other than Martin Luther. I would agree with Luther that Christ can certainly be seen in this text. However, typologically, in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, probably rather than grammatically in the words, the Lord, dot, 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 from the Lord. But I'm not going to even try to battle Martin Luther on the exegetical grounds of this passage. To me, the issue of whether he was correct or not, or any of the other church fathers who see it like that, to see Christ at work in this text because of the syntactical structure of the words, that's a mute point compared to the issue of whether this passage should be a place for the study Bible to dialogue with lay people about the pre-incarnate Christ or the doctrine of the Trinity. These notes, while quite fascinating, obviously caused great confusion with one of my lay people. And because I didn't have the context of Ambrose and Chemnitz in front of me, they caused me confusion too. I would say these notes are better served in a commentary with more context for pastors to sift through. Second, I would suggest that the adding of such voices, while well-intended, confuse our hermeneutical principle that Scripture interprets Scripture. Shouldn't there be something clear in the text, or at least another clearer text, that suggests the pre-incarnate Christ at work here? Now, I'm not saying that the pre-incarnate Christ is not at work here in the narrative, but is this a text I want my lay people to use to defend the doctrine of the pre-incarnate Christ or the Trinity? No way. How are they going to explain it? Jesus is at Sodom and Gomorrah because Ambrose and Chemnitz say so. <laughs> Should we read the pre-incarnate Christ into this text grammatically speaking just because a church father may have done so in a different time and a different context? I guess my point is the honorable intent of allowing the voices of the church fathers to speak to the reader and the godly intent of helping the reader to better defend his or her confession of faith with the help of their point of views, in this case, causes more confusion than offers benefits to the typical layperson. And now we'll turn over to Matthew Hainer for New Testament observations. Okay, as we uh, transition to the New Testament, we're going to take a look at two texts. Uh, the first is going to be Luke 16, 19-31, The Rich Men and Lazarus. Uh, I chose this text because it's the gospel, appointed gospel lesson uh, for this Sunday. I figured if you're going to hang out with us till 4.30, at least we could give you some notes for your sermon. In addition, we'll look at 1 Corinthians 14, 34-35, 
which is a challenging text referring to women being silent in the church. Again, study Bibles are used uh, to deal with some of these challenging texts. Now, these two texts will also allow us to look at a, a gospel lesson and an epistle, and they'll and allow us to engage a variety of different study notes. But by now, I think we all recognize that study Bibles reflect denominational affiliation and doctrinal views. And so my intent here is not to argue any kind of doctrinal view of the afterlife or women in the church, but rather to assess how these study Bibles use Scripture. That is, how these words that are bound to the Word use the Word. So uh, we're going to begin with the ELCA uh, study Bible, which is again the, the pink or the salmon a handout, and we are going to start with Luke 16, 19-31. Now, as we turn to the ELCA Study Bible, we find only three notes from Richard Swanson, and all of them are designated by the Word of the Bible icon. There's different icon, icons used to designate different functions of study notes. This basically functions to give you historical background or cultural components to the text. Thus, the primary function of these notes is to inform the reader of the cultural components of the text. And so to illustrate, if you look at uh, note 19, it explains that the royal and the Roman, it explains the royal and the Roman significance of the purple garments of the rich man. Now, whereas these notes are not as comprehensive in this study Bible as they are in the other two that we'll look at, what they do is they encourage one to read the scripture in light of its cultural context. And that's a good point. What they do is they pause the reader from jumping ahead and making a quick contemporary application of the text. Now we'll talk about this study Bible a little bit more in the, in the next text. Let's move on to the, the Crossways study Bible now in the tan copy. With the Crossways study Bible, one notes that Wayne Grudem, the general editor of the whole study Bible, and Thomas Schreiner, the New Testament editor of the study Bible, are the sources for the notes of Luke. Now, seminarians, you'll recognize Grudem um, with his work, Men and Women in Creation, if you're taking systematics classes on that topic. Also, you'll recognize uh, Schreiner and his work on interpreting the Pauline epistles. Now, the, the notes here are predominantly informative, just like the other one. And so they explain the, the regal splendor of the robes again. Worth noting, though, in these notes is that they see the account as a parable. If you look down in, in verse the note for verse 19 and 20. Thus, readers are cautioned not to press the details of doctrinal significance concerning the afterlife. This follows in note 23 and 24. Moreover, you see in their approach that they use the larger context of Scripture to inform their understanding of the circumstances in this text. For example, in this text you have a conversation between someone in heaven and in hell. Now the, the, the study notes point out that nowhere else in Scripture does this take place. Therefore, you may not want to push this in terms of your doctrine of the afterlife. Overall, one finds that the, the, the Crossway Study Bible is expository in its nature and it's conservative, that is, it's not definitive in its tone. And again, we'll address uh, this study Bible a little bit more in the next text. Now let's turn to the CPH version of the Lutheran Study Bible, and this is the yellow text. As mentioned before, 
the Lutheran Study Bible does not note or attribute the, the, the work to the authors. And so we don't know who the source is for these notes. Thus what we have is many voices addressing the topic uh, in a comprehensive way. So they're brought together in this a- ambiguous cloud of witnesses. However, what you see is a topical approach, and this topical approach to the, in the notes may lead to a tangential use of the Scripture. That is, it might take a person away from the main message of the Scripture onto a different topic, something I'm sure you pastors experience in your own Bible studies uh, each week. And as it does this and goes on to different topics, sometimes there's a lack of coherence. For the sake of time, let me just summarize the extensive notes that are in the CPH Bible by pointing out three categories. Genre, doctrinal connections, and devotional use. And just assume that there is a lot of informative notes there dealing with the culture and the historical context. In terms of genre, in note 19 to 31, which is not in your handout because it's on the previous page, it points out that because the name Lazarus, a personal name is used, this indicates that what we're dealing with is a realistic situation. Okay, so this, this afterlife experience with heaven and hell is a realistic situation because Lazarus, the name Lazarus is used. Now, in note 23, which is on, on your copy, it suggests that, suggests that the story provides a glimpse of the afterlife, though other passages of scriptures are needed to, to gain a clear and comprehensive teaching of the afterlife. Note the distinction between this and the crossways, which kind of cautions someone to go there doctrinally. Here we're going to go there because they see it as a realistic situation. Now this understanding of the narrative as a realistic situation leads to many doctrinal connections. Some might even say digressions. Uh, We're going to deal with topics of the afterlife, the nature of hell, uh, how the word of God uh, leads uh, or brings people to repentance and faith, even the question of why some are not saved is addressed in the study notes here on this text. Now, these are all important topics. But the question is, do they digress from Jesus' rebuke of the money lovers because of their lack of love for the poor? Now, let me just take one of these topics and kind of illustrate my point to you. Look at the afterlife. Concerning the afterlife, you'll see that on the adjacent page is a full-page essay on what happens when you die. Okay? As it takes on this topic and engages the reader, it does this, CPH does this for a, a very good practical reason. That is, CPH takes these essays, the doctrinal essays, and they, they spread them throughout the Scripture for a good reason. Because they're spread throughout the Scriptures, the reader will run into them and engage these essays. Whereas in the ESV Crossways Bible, all that material is placed at the back where someone could ignore all the information. Okay, so CPH is doing this for a good practical reason. But what happens is you have this whole page on the afterlife or what happens when you die adjacent to this text of the rich man Lazarus in hell and heaven. And what plays out is this. In the essay, you discuss the separation of the body and the soul. Next to a text that references a rich man in hell saying to Abraham, have Lazarus take his finger and dip it in the water and touch my tongue in hell. And so as the essay is dealing with the afterlife and this idea of separation of body and soul, 
the text is referring to body parts in heaven and hell. And so, whereas they're trying to address this topic, they lead to an unintended inconsistency as they do so. Now, moving on to uh, the, the devotional application of this text, uh, CPH uses a lot of different icons, and one of those icons is a law gospel icon. And here in verses 19 to 31, they address seemingly um, the problem of the theology of glory. They also emphasize uh, Jesus teaching us to heed his word now while faithful mercy can be shown. Then a, a prayer concludes by asking the Lord to teach us to read and trust his gift of the word and to speak God's grace. So here, God's, here the scriptures are used to lead the reader into prayer and to appreciate the scriptures. And this is a good thing. This is one of the strengths of CPH is that it forms the reader devotionally to use the scriptures to go into prayer and, and apply law gospel in their lives. And yet, uh, to summarize, the, the study Bible's comprehensive topical approach to the text provides a wealth of information. But the doctrinal digressions may at times distract the reader from the message of the text itself. And so one could come away focused on the word and yet overlooking the poor. Now let's uh, switch over to the 1 Corinthians 14.34 text. And again, we'll start with the ELCA study Bible. Now here the ELCA study Bible, you'll see that there is only one study note assigned to this difficult text referring to women being silent in the church. It's designated as a body, uh, Bible concept note which is intended to focus on theological insights and ideas and how they relate to other parts of Scripture. Here, David Fredrickson makes four points concerning the phrase, women should be silent in in the churches. They are, these verses seem to contradict Paul's approval of women speaking in the church in other passages, citing 1 Corinthians 11.5. Some scholars, point two, believe this passage is non-Pauline edition, more like the pastoral letters, Point three is others think Paul is being inconsistent. And finally, point four, the issue is the kind of speech in which the women were involved. That is, everyday conversations were not to distract from the assembly's conversation. Though nothing is asserted here, the conversation assumes that there is a problem with Paul's words. There's no attempt to understand the words with the use of scripture, but rather the notes destabilize the text by providing grounds to discredit Pauline authorship or to demonstrate that Paul is being, is that, to demonstrate Paul's self-contradiction. Now, as we turn to the ESV and its treatment of this challenging text for our culture today, one notices that Frank Thielman is responsible for the notes in 1 Corinthians. Now, Thielman takes a, a conservative, that is, not definitive approach uh, to this text as he describes it and tries to explain it. And this conservative input leads to an outcome in which the reader has a clear, concise, yet not definitive understanding of the text, but an understanding that it's grounded in the context of 1 Corinthians and Scripture as a whole. If you look at the note for 34 and 35, it, this illustrates it well. The note is for the, the phrase, the women should, be ke- should keep silent in the churches. And there Thielman states, since Paul seems to permit wives to pray and prophesy, 
And note he notes, uh, or he cites uh, references, uh, 1 Corinthians 11. As long as they do not dishonor their husbands by their, the way they dress, it is difficult to see this as an absolute prohibition. And here he goes to Acts. Acts 2.17 is uh, Peter using uh, Joel's prophecy in, in Pentecost. And also 21 is a reference to uh, Philip's uh, daughters who were prophesying. Tillman continues, Paul is likely forbidding women to speak up and judge prophecies. This is the activity of the immediate context. And there he points to 1 Corinthians 14.29. Since such an activity would subvert male headship. So notice how he, he, he takes a less assertive approach and uh, is a caution in his statements about this text, but at the same time grounds it in the context. Finally, uh, concerning the phrase, the law also says, Thielman writes, Paul is probably thinking of the woman's creation from and for the man. There again he goes to 1 Corinthians 11. But here he grounds the law, the understanding of the law, in Genesis 2, 20-24. Now I know it's been a long day, guys, but notice this point. So as we go on to the next one, you'll be able to see the distinction. He is grounding the law in the order of creation here, pre-fall. Okay? Overall, though, if you look at Thielman's uh, treatment of the text, he demonstrates how one can draw a conservative conclusion from a, the context of a difficult passage in Scripture and yet not be definitive about uh, his conclusion. And now let's, let's turn to the CPH and see how they address this text. Again, CPH is the yellow copy. Now, CPH, Study Bible, seems to recognize that this text raises difficult questions for the reader, and so they provide many sources uh, to discuss it. The risk is when you bring in a bunch of sources from different uh, places and contexts together, you risk that the material might not cohere, you also risk that you might overcomplicate the, the, the point, leaving the reader kind of confused. Let me just point out three things in this note. First of all, if you look at the note for the phrase, women should keep silent, the note states that women likely participate in worship, Exodus 15.20, and they also prophesied privately. Here they reference 1 Corinthians 11 and Acts 21.9. Now note how they use the broader um, scriptures to interpret what's going on here and make sense of this. Now the, the difficulty here is that they, they say that these two scriptures, 1 Corinthians 11 and Acts 21, um, point out that they are prophesying privately. And if you look at those two texts, neither of them specifically say that the prophecy is happening privately. It just references women prophesying. Next, the second point, the study Bible states that Paul distinguishes the roles of male and female based on created order with a reference to 1 Corinthians 11.3 and a full-page article on men and women in the church, page 1972. So here we go with the argument that this is the order of creation. But as you can see on your handout, it points you, one, to 1 Corinthians 11.3, and two, to this big article adjacent to the text. Unfortunately, in my reading of both of those references, I didn't gain a clear understanding of the order of creation. Uh, 11.3 in, in 1 Corinthians deals with headship, and so you get a lot of information on headship, which you can connect if you know how to connect to order of creation. Uh, the article 
next to the, the page brings a, a whole bunch of information on the topic of, of women in the church. Lots of food for thought, but not necessarily directed at this order of creation point that is there. Finally, the very next line in the note, right after it makes the point of order of creation, says this about the phrase the law also says. Here, the church father John Chrysostom is quoted using Genesis 3.16. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you to understand the law. Thus, the law is understood as a consequence of the fall. That is, it is established by the fall, not creation. So see the contrast between what Crossways, does, Thielman does in the Crossways Bible and what's going on here, where the law is grounded in the created order pre-fall in the last study Bible, and here Christendom, the church father, grounds it in the effects or the, the consequences of the curse and the fall and sin. Now, some people read this as a proper understanding of this text, and again, we're not going to go there in terms of the doctrinal view. But what is interesting is this is a significant move from one line to the next, order of creation to um, the fall. And yet there's no recognition of that and there's no distinction made for the reader going through the text. And this is what we mean by when you bring a lot of materials together, sometimes unintentionally it can bring confusion to the reader. Overall, the provision of, the many, the provision of many sources can be an aid for the reader in this study Bible. However, the nature of the sources, that is heavily edited material like the essay on the, the page uh, adjacent to the text. And um, quotes from the church fathers uh, thrown in with uh, some other um, sources may create a need for more work and interpretation as, as the reader kind of struggles to put all this stuff together. So to kind of wrap up what we've been saying here today in terms of the study Bibles, in the context of our discussion of the use of Scripture, we see how different study Bibles use Scripture in, a different way, in different ways. In the text selected, we saw how the ELCA study Bible reflects a conversation about the text. And this conversation allows a diversity of views that destabilizes the text and disrupts the coherence of the Scriptures. Now this makes sense when you understand the origin of this study Bible that came out of the Book of Faith initiative with its motto, Open the scriptures and join the conversation. That's what you have. The Crossway Study Bible addresses the text in an expository and yet conservative, again, not definitive, manner, seeking to logically ground the explanation of the text in the, in the scriptures. It puts its devotional instruction in the front of the study Bible, and it puts its doctrinal essays in the back of the study Bible altogether. The CPH Study Bible is more assertive in its comments, and it uses Scripture to inform one's faith apologetically through these topical studies. And it also forms the reader devotionally as it leads it through law gospel application and it leads them into prayer. As it takes a more comprehensive and topical approach to explaining the text, however, sometimes it risks, it risks um, the lack of coherence. Overall, I'd like to, to commend all the men and women who set themselves to the tax of producing these study Bibles for us uh, to put these tools in front of God's people to help them use Scripture. These study Bibles are often um, a great asset to people. I have people tell me all the time in church and in the classes I teach that they appreciate these study Bibles. 
And uh, what these study Bibles do is they bring a lot of the materials um, that we read in bigger books and they make it accessible for the, the average day reader of the text. However, through this uh, presentation, hopefully it's illustrated to you that study Bibles don't replace pastors and teachers. You haven't been outsourced by print. <laughs> Instead, God continues to call pastors and teachers to lead us to lead God's people to a proper understanding and a faithful understanding of the text. And yet, as servants of the Word, we all realize that we've all been humbled by the depth of this text. And so none of us here expects any study Bible to have all the answers or have the correct answers at every place. Um, and, so, and so it is. We gather to, together today to lean on each other, to sharpen each other's use of the Scriptures, uh, so that we can lead people to the one whom the Scriptures proclaim, the very one who is the key to the proper interpretation of the Scriptures, that is Jesus. Luke 24:27 says this about Christ, And beginning with the Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. The CPH study, note, um, study Bible has a, a fitting note here. Here it quotes uh, Augustine on the, this text, and he writes, All that there is of those former Scriptures tells us of Christ but only if it finds ears. He also opened their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. Whence we also must pray for this, that he would open our understanding. Thanks for your time.